Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Filer. In today's episode, I'm talking with my friend, Shelby. She is a wedding florist and wife. We talk about personal responsibility, wedding floristry, basic income, floral theory, feeling the concerns of running a business, attention autonomy, the possibility of living on Mars, climate change, addiction, tokenism, Jordan Peterson, and other topics. This show is supported by a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Kari underscore Filer, you can support it there. I hope you enjoy the show. So well, you, I'm a Mac kind of girl, an Apple girl, you know. Normally, that's the case. Oh yeah, I like to have I have my Apple laptop, my Apple um, TV, you know, so it all sync. Well, we are live. Please introduce yourself, Shelby, to the people that are listening. All right. Well, my name is Shelby. Um, Let's see. I am currently a wife. I am a daughter. I'm a business owner. Um, I live in Long Beach and have for most of my life. Um, And I'm happy to be here. I'm also a sister and an aunt and... I'm all kinds of things. So, um, what's yeah, your business? So, I primarily do floral design, hmm. and that's for weddings. Um, so, I'm in the wedding industry. I also do coordination, like day of coordination. Okay. Um, but I'm stopping that at the end of this year. I'm going to phase that out and just focus on the floral design. What's the difference between the two that makes you prefer the floral design and not the day of coordination? The flowers are a lot more creative, Mm. and that's really why I love it. I mean, bottom line, coordination, I feel I'm good at it. I think it comes to me naturally, but it's um, very, like, detail-oriented. It's very, like, logistics. It's it's emails. It's timelines. It's... um, a lot more work in the background Mm. and the flowers are just so they're so visual there's so many different colors and textures i get to work with my hands and really it's like the art behind it that that i love it's cathartic in that way yeah it totally is it's very therapeutic what are some of your favorite flower arrangements i'm going to look them up on google images okay um do you mean like, uh, like, if you'd be able to find like specific floral arrangements, or maybe like a specific type of flower? I don't know. I'm- okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's also like a specific florists that are in like the local industry that I really look up to. Hmm. So um, I could tell you some of those that you could look up, but. Um, right now I'll, you could look up an anthurium. It's a flower that I've been working with. It's A-N-T-H-U-R-I-U-M. And that is, it was once thought of to be like 1980s, early 90s, kind of like old school flower, but it's coming back around. And I like, what are those red flowers that we put in our homes during Christmas time? Oh, like a poinsettia? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that totally a noob? Am I totally a noob by even comparing the two simply because they're red? Uh, yeah, maybe because anthurium is popularly a, a red flower as a house plant. Um, so maybe that's what you're thinking. It definitely has like the leafy greens and then the red that pops out. Anthuriums come in all different colors, though, oh, which is cool. 
Very fun. Very fun. Are yeah. you? Do you have a green thumb yourself? You know, I think I do. And as I like dive more into this, I'm realizing that my dad does as well. Hmm. And his parents both did. Um, especially his dad. Uh, I remember they lived in Long Beach too, over by Long Beach City College. And they had a huge backyard hmm. with like a koi pond. And my grandpa had a... Um, a greenhouse with all his orchids that he built himself. You could walk inside of it. It was humongous. And uh, my dad at one point had a green uh, greenhouse in our backyard, but it was much smaller. Um, and then it turns out my grandma did floral arranging in like small contests uh, up in Lakewood. There were like, um, what, is, what were they called? Um, just it was like a club that she was in and they would all do flower arranging and then they'd bring them to the contest and they'd win like little medals and uh, so we found a book of hers that had some pictures and I do remember as a really young kid going to one of her contests and seeing the flowers it's like at the fair where they have like an exhibit hall and you could walk through and see the presentation so okay. I I think I kind of got some of it from them, which is really cool to, to think about. At least that's what I tell myself because it gives it more meaning, you know, that to think that it was like passed down from them in a way. Yeah. Well, you only get one family. Uh, we don't pick yeah. our family. I've been making an argument for the past couple of years that we are where we are born. It's 100 percent luck who our birth parents are. Uh, the time of history, that is to say, whether it be the late 20th century or the early 13th century, whether it's mm -hmm. in America or South Africa or Germany, wherever you happen to be born or when you happen to be born and who you happen to be born to is 100 percent luck. But yeah, by the time you're 25, uh, by the time the prefrontal cortex of your brain has matured and you are a adult person biologically, not just legally. That is the point at which your actions can only be described or should only be described as choices that you have to be responsible for. It's no longer luck. And so mm -hmm. the hard part is how do you describe the transition, that 25 year transition from luck mm -hmm. to responsibility? Because you don't have to be responsible for things that you're only lucky for. But at 25, you got to be responsible for your life. Uh, mm -hmm. and the way I describe that transition is let's say you are five years old. And you really look up to a cousin you have and mm -hmm. and she's coming over for the weekend and she was, so you guys are going to a theme park then you have this hero that you really enjoy uh and your hero always says don't steal don't steal stealings for losers and so you really carry that in your heart your father unfortunately has divorced your mother and he told mm -hmm. you a few months before your mother's a horrible person and she deserves every bad thing that comes her way uh, it's, mm. You didn't have him say that to you, but he said that to you. And when you think of your mother, all you imagine is her picking you up and squeezing you and saying, you are so lovely. I love you so much. You're terrific. These mm. and, and one day you're standing in line next to this cousin that you really admire. And your cousin elbows you because there's a $50 wallet, a $50 bill hanging out of your mother's wallet, standing behind her. And you know what mm -hmm. your cousin is saying. Your cousin is saying, help me take this money away. So in a moment you are now presented with either helping your cousin become a thief or not or rebuking your cousin's advancements to, to join them in their in their thievery. And so in mm -hmm. that moment, 
you don't know what you're going to do, but the image of your hero flashes, flashes, the image of your mother flashes, the image of the way your father treats you flashes, and the way you feel about your cousin flash, flashes. All these things mm -hmm. flash in your mind in a few seconds, and either you nod your head up and down, and your cousin takes the bill, or you shake your head left and right, and your cousin crosses their arms and kicks a pebble at you. And so in mm -hmm. this moment, you have made a choice, and that choice converted some of the luck you were born with into responsibility and that's mm -hmm. what happens for 25 years and in 25 years we say to you okay you've converted all your luck now <laughs> you're responsible mm -hmm. now for all the choices that you've made and that's the way i've been describing right. it yeah well that was a very vivid picture is that uh are you talking about a real life experience or did you no, come up with that on your own uh, <laughs> it's just it's just a, i mean but you can you can imagine I mean, yeah. paint, paint that for your own life. Uh, I can tell you plenty of times when I'm I'm sitting here, I'm at UPS, and this guy Jerry says, "Hey, let's go do some dirt." I know I shouldn't go do dirt with Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> I know good and well I shouldn't go do dirt with Jerry. But what do yeah. I do? I go do dirt with Jerry, and I got to take responsibility for that. Yeah. What and it, when you're a kid, it's even harder. I mean, you mm -hmm. just have so many more influences going through your brain, like you were saying. So many different things will flash through your brain. Mm -hmm. And hopefully as an adult, you have one of those voices that can kind of speak louder than the others and, and tell you what's right or wrong in those situations. But What were some even as an lessons adult, that you, you know? learned about responsibility coming up? lessons well I can say that I, I definitely as an adult appreciate some of the like chores that we were taught to do mm. that when we were younger I really dreaded and we just I remember just having our parents having to force us to do them now it's like I'm in the habit and I like it for myself, mm. you know, no longer do people have to tell me to do stuff. Things like making my bed, um, you know, like taking care of the house, like that type of stuff I wouldn't have learned if my parents hadn't have forced it on me at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, but the hard part is like communicating that to like your kids, when we have kids, it's like, how are you going to let them know that, hey, I once too felt like you do, but now looking back, I am glad that my parents taught me these disciplines. And you, there's no way to really, you know, until they live it, they won't know for themselves, I don't think. But in hindsight, I'm really glad. What My parents had like a um, chores schedule on mm. the fridge. Uh, it was my sister and I, and we had to do things like, load the dishes, unload the dishes, um, like feed the dog. Um, we had to vacuum, uh, and it would like switch every week or something what we were mm. supposed to do. So, but I do remember dreading that as a kid for sure. Well, I would imagine your parents were themselves responsible people. And yeah. led by example. Uh, I think that's the best way is really, if yeah. you, if you lead by example, as a parent, uh, you don't have to say, do as I say, not as I do. You can just say, mm -hmm. do as I do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. They did, for sure. How much older are you than your sister? I assumed you were older. Are you younger? Actually, yeah, she's older. She's mm. two years older. That's so she um, is married and has two baby boys, and those are my nephews. And I love them more than I ever thought I could possibly 
love babies that weren't mine. Of course, of course. Children do you have are any, our future. Do, do you have any siblings? I can't remember. I don't. Only child. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you, how about your wife? Does she have She um, does. Siblings? She has a younger sister. Okay. Yeah. And does that sister have kids yet? One, a bun in the oven. Oh, there yeah, you go. Yeah, on the way, on the way. So honestly, even though she's not blood related to you, I think you'll be able to feel what it feels like to be an uncle to that kid. And it's honestly so, it's such a cool feeling. Oh, I'm certain. I'm certain. Mm -hmm. uh, let me mm -hmm. ask what you think of our culture these days, uh, that whether it be American culture or California culture or Angelino culture, uh, what are some issues you see happening that we should be, be paying attention to? Mm, um, I, I don't really know. I feel like that question could be answered in a lot of different ways, Certainly. right? Um, I try not to pay attention to, um, to like current affairs as much as I can. Mm. Um, I know culture is a little bit different than current affairs um i yeah i just feel that the way things are like presented whether it's on social media or on the news or and even when you open your email it's like there's ads all over the place that, or articles that pop out at you right whether you want to see them or not um and so it's always blown out of proportion and mm. in like positive or negative. And so I, I tend to really try not to pay attention unless I have to. Um, what do you I will... pay attention to? Um, I'm sure there are some uh, Instagram threads, Pinterest threads that you're just totally into. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the wedding industry mm. um, keeps me very amused. I follow on my Instagram account. I follow a lot of other wedding professionals. So um, I find that it's um, entertaining to see like how other people post about the weddings that they're having or um, sometimes they'll, they'll be like funny memes or um, like shared stories that are, um, a little bit like controversial or um like um what's the word i'm looking for no i don't want to say like like talking smack but like if you can like share in a funny way about like a silly bride or like a demanding bride or something like that then mm. we can like bond over like the um like commiserate right over like annoying clients mm -hmm. um things like that are really interesting um you know and in regards to current affairs i will say that since since a couple months prior to the election this year and um and really a lot of what happened um uh, yeah i guess it was all right around the same time but a lot of what happened last year really like it did spark my interest because it has now started to like pertain to me in mm. a way that it never really felt like it did before you How know so? so um i guess i just feel like it's it's more important to have an opinion these days mm. than 
I used to get along for a while without having an opinion on stuff. And now it's kind of like I'm able to question myself and like, how do I really feel about this topic? You know, and I'm realizing that I actually do have feelings. Um, and then it, it presents the problem of like, well, how do my friends feel about these things? And, mm-hmm. and I say that it's a problem because now I'm realizing that not all of my friends think the same way I do. And even oh, no. my husband sometimes. And, and before, I guess when I had the blinders on, I didn't, it never occurred to me that these people who are like in my close circle could actually have very different perspective on some of these mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, things. So I'm speaking really generally, but um, I get you. It's, I get you. it's definitely become more relevant over the last year, let's say, than it ever was before. And I don't know if that's just because I'm older, I'm more like educated, or because there's just so much has happened that. I kind of had to form an opinion on. It was just like so in my face last year, I think, and it's, this year still. It's both of those things and a third thing. So it is you getting older uh, and more mm-hmm. mature. And as as we all age and become wiser, our perspective lift, lifts up higher. And the higher you go, the further you can see. And that just tends to happen yeah. as we age. Also, mm. uh, there is the age of information is on us uh, and there's so much yeah. information to disseminate in the world that it's a problem that our parents and grandparents really couldn't even have imagined from the world they yeah. came up in uh, but the third thing i think is that our nation america is actually at an inflection point is actually at a turning point uh, we're mm-hmm. at a point in history in which the nation is going to go in a different direction than it's been going now what is that mm-hmm. new direction going to be that's up to us <laughs> That's mm-hmm. up to us that are here uh, participating, uh, steering the ship. And so it's all three of those things. I, I think you're astute in realizing that that's happening. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm on the spectrum. So I'm a UBI, you can call me a UBI liberal. Uh, I'm not okay. a Democrat. Uh, I, I'm not a member of the Democratic Party. I'm not a member of the Republican Party. Uh, my leanings are liberal coming up in Southern California. But uh, I don't, I like I said, I don't identify with the Democratic Party uh, by any okay. stretch. But I'm a UBI uh, proponent. Uh, that is really my central kind of political pillar. Uh, if there was a UB, if there was a UBI party, I'd be a member of that party. <laughs> uh, what does that stand for? Universal Basic Income. Okay. So universal I heard you talking about that. Universal Basic before. Income is the idea that every member of a society gets some um, fixed regular fixed according to the, the everybody gets it but it does not fixed year after year uh income that just comes from i think we can get a ubi from a vat which is a value added tax uh, which is essentially a national sales tax uh-huh. i think we could also close some loopholes uh, to help fund a basic income we could probably reduce some military spending uh, i'm not talking about getting rid of military spending i'm saying do we need to make a bigger faster bomber no, right? Uh, that's not the, I mean, if, if anything, we, we need to spend more money on cyber uh, defense than, than actual munitions. Uh, that's just uh-huh. my opinion. So that's where I land politically. Uh, and I tend to talk to my friends about that pretty early on. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and, and if we, let me think, do I, I have some friends that are actually conservative uh, and disagree yeah. with me deeply about basic income. They say, oh, it's going to make people lazy and people are inherently lazy. And the last thing you want to do is give them another reason to be lazy. That's their main knee jerk reaction. Uh, I don't think yeah. it has to stop you from being friends with people, but it's definitely interesting 
a ground to try to cover. Have you tried to broach any of those conversations? Um, it we I had to with mm. a certain friend um, because it was like a, she felt so different um, than than I did, and we actually navigated it really well. Um, where we just decided that we are gonna, you know, if we want to talk about it, we can, we're both going to try to approach it in like the most loving way because it, it needs to be discussed and there needs to be a place, especially among your friends where you can say like, I feel uncomfortable about this, but I, it needs to be talked about, you know? So, um, we like, we both acknowledged that we felt really differently but that it's not gonna really need to affect our relationship i mean if i've been i've been friends with this particular person for like five or six years so if mm -hmm. it's never come up mm -hmm. until now and i had no clue that she even felt this way why am i now gonna like label her a certain way and decide that it changes my feelings mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. or like the actual topics that we stand opposed on have have never come up in our lives before you know so um, so that was a pr pretty healthy conversation. Um, I have two questions for you about the UBI Great. though. Um, if, does everyone get the same amount theoretically? Yes. No, no matter how much they make in their job. Yes. Or, or their net worth. So Jeff Bezos would get a check for $1,200 a month and Jimmy, I don't want to work, but I'd rather smoke crack all day is going to get a check for $1,200 a month. <laughs> Hmm. Everybody and everybody in between, which includes a bunch of hardworking middle class people. And that's and that's really the main push. Right. Is that a lot of times when you mention UBI, uh, we can go to the extremes. Right. We can say, wait, you mean drug addicts are going to get it? You mean Bezos is going to get it? Those are the extremes. Most people are not drug addicts or billionaires. <laughs> most people, not 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 most of us. Most people are taxpaying, hardworking uh, middle, maybe upper middle, maybe lower middle class families who have mortgages and bills and who don't have enough to live for the rest of their days without working. Uh, most people are in that position. And those people are the people who would benefit from a guaranteed monthly income. Because what they what I feel like they would do is they would say, OK, here I am selling myself for 40 hours a week to keep the lights on in an industry that I don't really like, I don't really enjoy, let's say it's finance, I don't really like finance. I rather do um, I rather do planning, right? And that's really what I want to do. I really want to be a party planner. And so mm -hmm. they can't leave their job because they need the health insurance. They can't leave their job because they need the paycheck. But maybe if their spouse actually makes enough to kind of keep everybody afloat as long as they get that they get that income and both members of the household would get the income then they can take that risk they can be an entrepreneur where our current social safety net doesn't allow for that uh, and that's mm -hmm. what i think would be the largest and most beneficial uh outcome of a basic income is that you could have a surge of american entrepreneur entrepreneurship that our current safety net doesn't support and doesn't doesn't encourage most people in america are encouraged to find some way to sell yourself and stay in that lane uh, unless you mm -hmm. unless you ha are fortunate enough to have a family that can support you while you try to become an entrepreneur. Uh, but if you're not that fortunate, then just stay in line. Uh, and that's a message from our culture that I push back against. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I heard a statistic the other day that a third of Americans are thinking about quitting their job. Yep. And I didn't read the actual article, so I don't know whether it was like 
because they're unhappy or because of what, but uh, pretty that was pretty surprising. Um, why not just raise minimum wage and then therefore, uh, like all other salaries above minimum wage would also be raised? So the reason to not raise minimum wage, because wage is still an exchange for attention. Uh, and that's the principle that I want to steer us away from. Currently, the economy is anchored on this idea that in order to for anyone to give you in order to have enough food to eat, in order to have your lights on, you have to sell yourself to someone in some sort of way. You have to sell your attention or sell some of your time. Uh, and I'm pushing against that. I think that the actual source of value in our economy is human attention itself. That is to say, every time you click a button on Instagram, you're adding value to the economy. Every time you watch a commercial, every time you play a game, every time you watch a show, every time you buy a sandwich, you're contributing to the economy. And which mm -hmm. sandwich shop you choose, which social media you choose, which games you choose to play, those are meaningful decisions. And we should have an economy that reflects those decisions. If you're spending time with your sister, if you're spending time with your parents or your cousins, those are contributions to the economy in a, in a mm -hmm. larger sense. So economy in American vernacular has become far too narrow to only mean the way money moves. The economy is larger mm -hmm. than that. The economy means the way that people move, the way that people's attentions move, the, the problems that people are free to focus on. That's what the economy is based on. So we need to free people's attention to pay attention to the things that they want to pay attention to with all of their time and not just the things they have to pay attention to. And that's why mm -hmm. I don't call for, I mean, raising the minimum wage will be great, but that's not a fundamental shift in the way our economy is designed. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, why, your point about taking it from um, like a universal tax, I think, what mm -hmm. did you call the tax? Uh, value added tax or a federal sales yeah. tax? So basically you would raise, you would be adding money on top of goods, right? So like a bag of chips would have this tax on top of it. Yeah. So now it costs more to buy the bag of chips mm -hmm. with the money that you got in order to pay for the chips. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's, it feels like a catch 22. Oh, no, it's not because, because the, now everything's more expensive. Uh, but it's not because the basic income would be on the order of, let's say, $1,200 a month. So the, and the tax would be about 20 percent. So in order to pay back twelve hundred dollars a month in tax, you have to spend north of ten thousand dollars a month in order to pay that back in tax. And I don't know about you, but I don't spend ten thousand dollars a month. <laughs> so for most uh -huh. for most people is going to be a net benefit every single month. Now, for Amazon, for Facebook, for Google. Yeah, it's going to be a net loss for them. They're going to be paying a lot more than they are right now. But for most folks, it's going to be a net positive. Mm -hmm. So 20% tax you're, you're suggesting on top of the 10.75 city tax that we have here? Now, I'm not suggesting it as a 20% tax. I don't think that's realistic. What I would suggest in the United States would be a VAT of about 10 to 13% because the states already have 7 to 15% taxes. California already mm -hmm. has this tax. And so you could, and, and, plus, and also... The VAT doesn't go in as a sales tax. I'm referring it to, a, to it as a sales tax now because that's what it ends up becoming. And so I have a friend who, when you say, oh, when it's VAT, it just becomes a sales tax. Yeah, conceptually, that's a fine way to argue. Because what happens is every time Frito's Lay's 
uh, gets a machine repaired, let's say, they have to pay an extra 20% or extra 13% to get that machine repaired. Every time they buy uh -huh. a new office, they have to pay an extra 13% to buy that new office. Every time they buy aluminum or potatoes or oil or whatever the raw ingredients are or for salt, they have to pay that extra 13%. And then they pass that on to us. And so a VAT isn't exactly a federal sales tax, but effectively it kind of becomes that because the companies are guaranteed they're going to pass those costs on to us. They aren't just going to eat it. Right. Yeah. Okay, so it's not intended to be, but the company could choose to. They could. They, they probably would. <laughs> let's assume. Yeah. Let's assume they would. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. The the main the main reason I think a UBI is is so game changing, uh, and this is why this is the party I'm in because it's actually, it's it's party agnostic, right? I'm calling for a way to keep rural white Americans afloat without having uh, Frito-Lay in their backyard. I'm calling for a way to keep inner city brown people afloat without having to sell themselves to Yum! Brands and KFC. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's about the American common. Uh, and I think, mm -hmm. that's what, I think that's what makes it trans party. As, as yeah. Andrew Yang said, it's not left or right, it's forward. Oh, I love that. Yeah, had you heard of Andrew Yang? No. Yeah, yeah. He was my So, guy but what does what makes it a full party? Because or it's uh, not no, yet. But it's you not said a party. If it was, I just call okay. it a party. Yeah. Gotcha. Maybe, maybe it'll become okay. a party. Maybe we're starting. Maybe I'm starting the party right now. Maybe Andrew. <laughs> no, actually, maybe Andrew Yang is already starting the UBI party. There you go. Yeah. Because it would, um, it wouldn't necessarily drive all of your political decisions. It's just sort of like a spec. Of, of politics yeah well so politics i believe is a function of of a of a group of a certain of a civilization of a certain size there's a group of a certain size so if you've got uh, one person in a room there's no politics but if you have two people in that room there are now politics in that room uh, mm -hmm. and that's just mm -hmm. the nature of it and so when you've got 320 million people that are supposed to be getting along yeah it's mm -hmm. going to be political <laughs> As we mm -hmm. as we navigate, uh, and that's mm -hmm. that's the way I think about it. I think about politics as people with different moral compasses trying to live together, um, mm -hmm. which is which is what I th what I think it is. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's that's what drives my decisions. What drives my decisions? I'm kind of an American chauvinist, to be absolutely honest. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. No, I'm a human. I'm not an American chauvinist. I take that back. I'm a human chauvinist, but I'm kind of a nationalist. Um, Mm -hmm. For instance, somebody, there are people who say, well, you don't want, a, they say a universal basic income isn't really universal because it only is only going to Americans. What about the Angolans? What about the Moroccans? What about the South Africans and the, and the Vietnamese? Uh, I say, yes, you're, you're right. It's a national basic income. Um, I believe that every nation has to look after itself first. Kind of like if you have a person in a family who is not taking care of themselves, but they're trying to take care of the family. Well, if they devolve into psychosis, they aren't doing anyone any good. As a nation, we're kind of devolving into psychosis. So <laughs> we need to get that right first. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And then we'll then we'll go back to helping people. Are there other countries that have a UBI? Not fully, not fully. It's an old idea. It's an old capitalist idea. Um, but nobody has done it in a full implementation yet for good reason. Um, mm -hmm. There's no putting that cat in the back. It's kind of like Social Security. Social Security is never going away. 
it's it's show and the thing is basic income is social security for everybody right that's, that's what it is uh, and the reason social security is never going away because we have eradicated elder poverty to you eradicated in quotes right they're still impoverished elderly people but those that are eligible for social security there are plenty of programs to get them you know there are people that fall through the cracks for a number of individual reasons but the system is there to catch them if if we can only get a hold of those people Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what UBI would be. UBI would be a remarkable push against poverty, and it would allow us to focus on the incredible difficulty of being a thriving human. Uh, that's already incredible, dif- incredibly difficult. You, we don't need society making life harder. Life's hard enough. We're, we need society mm-hmm. making life easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's where I stand on it. And I'm sure that Social Security at one point was thought to be a crazy idea, you know, and before they had it. Now I think it's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. Because we want to get to the we want to get to the business of setting up uh, flowers at weddings. Right. We want to get to the business of celebrating life uh, and not not constantly in drudgery, although we know drudgery is an important part. Who are your inspirations in your industry? Um, there's two that come to mind. Um, they're both female. Um, they are, uh, well, I'll just name drop their companies, I guess. It's, um, Lavender's Flowers and Siren Floral Co. Um, Lavender's, her name is Janelle and she is in the Orange County area. She is, um, really a genius when it comes to the art behind the work she i've taken Mm. a couple workshops from her and we learned about like color theory she taught us about like the color wheel um like the real basic uh studies of color and how they work together in a color palette um and then siren her name's rachel she's down in san diego and rachel's all about she doesn't use things like theory or (laughs) color wheel she's all about how the flowers make her feel and it's very like intuitive for her when she's picking things so I feel like I'm kind of um uh in the middle of the two of them I took a workshop from a one-on-one workshop from both of them Mm. um and realized how different they were at that time but um yeah I really look up to both of them Janelle has also uh, led some classes on, like, the business behind uh, this whole thing. So, you know, how can you be profitable and how, like, what should you be pricing at and Mm. how to, you know, there's a lot actually out there in teaching other entrepreneurs, like, how to um, ask for what you feel you're worth, you know, when it comes to pricing. Like, so there's a, a lot behind it. I've been really lucky to be able to take some of those classes and workshops and even at the beginning of last year when things were obviously shut down and super slow for my industry Mm. i enrolled in a couple different things that were so helpful um so i feel really fortunate that it's such a community of um like they say community over competition right so like even though we all want to be the best there's a lot of like sharing and like um, openness that comes um, at like really high levels. Like like very professional florists have shared a lot of their secrets about how they got to be where they are. So it's a very cool industry to be in. I just finished 
uh, I just finished a book called Nature by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And one thing, um, it's an essay, actually. It's a long essay. It's not a full book. But he yeah. breaks nature. No, he breaks beauty apart into three parts. And one mm-hmm. of the parts is the beauty that strikes us in the moment when we behold some component of the world that exists prior to human intervention. So when you look at a tree, when you look at a a blade of grass, when you look at a mammal, when you look at a reptile, anything that was on earth before human, there's Mm -hmm. a, before humans, there is a, a momentary just striking you're struck with a beauty in every moment that you look at that sort of thing and it seems like that's what you're where you're where you're living where you're working in that space that space of being hit by the beauty of nature yeah because the flowers are naturally beautiful like Mm. they really do most of my work for me i Mm. think and um, although nowadays you do find a lot of like, uh, dyed flowers where they'll dye the, um, they just add color to the water and the flower will soak it up. So yeah. you see a lot of that, but most things are just their natural selves. Does that add um, to or take away from the arrangement? Do you think the dyed elements? Yeah. Um, I think it's trendy right now. I don't know if it'll always be around, um, I don't, it just depends on really your taste and every bride is so different. So some people might say they don't want any of that, but I think it's really cool because you can get like blue and other colors that wouldn't be natural. You can get more out of it if they're, if they're just tweaked a little bit. (laughs) We do a lot of that. You know, we do a lot of things um, behind the scenes that will tweak the flower in a way that maybe not always gonna naturally look like this but just for the sake of the of the event we'll we'll either wire something and we'll pin it or you know we do some of that that's not supposed to be seen by like the guest perspective and i would imagine so, that only works for white flowers uh you yeah turn probably. a blue flower orange could you no yeah I think blue and orange make brown. Do they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But if it was a yellow flower and you added blue, it'd be green. You there know, you just go. like the primary colors. So yeah, mostly white. You definitely get the best effect. What are your aspirations for your company? Where do you? What's your five, ten year outlook? Um, I would love to have a studio of some kind. So right now I'm working out of my parents' garage and I am so fortunate that I even have that space. I have a big floral cooler there that I get to keep everything in. Um, I would, you know, if we're fortunate enough to be able to buy a home, then I would probably move my studio into our garage. Um, but the... The uh, icons that I talked about, my role models, they have like just a studio um, that's outside of their home that they've been able to set up in such a beautiful way. You know, just like huge workspace and a huge walk-in cooler. And um, so having like a a professional workspace like that is like at the top of my list. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to be able to have a ton of assistance. You know, I want to be able to rely on other people 
to do some of the work that maybe I don't need to do. Um, I just heard, uh, I can't remember where it is right now, but it was this great line that says, only do what only you can do. You know, so when you're trying, isn't that great? So when you're trying to, um, divide and conquer and like take on a big task, if you can delegate some of the stuff that you don't need to be doing, that's the perfect job for someone Mm. else, you know, but there is a lot of stuff as the business owner that really I can only do. And for me being like pretty controlling, I tend to think that I can only do a lot of stuff and that's just true. Um, but I'd love to have just like a Rolodex of people that I could call on when we have a big event or whatever. And I want to be in a position financially where I can pay these people well, you know, competitive rates and really take care of, them um there have you ever read the book um uh, i will teach you to be rich no um it's ramit something with an s his name is ramit he's like indian guy and um i he talks about having your rich life and defining what your rich life looks like for everyone and uh, so i read it and i have like a list of like six things and one of them is to be able to pay my assistants really well and that to me is like if I could do that I, I would feel like I was living my rich life not necessarily maybe having employees like like full-time or part-time employees but these are like independent contractors you know I'm with you I'm with you I've got a similar aspiration I'd love to run a game company one day uh, mm-hmm. and so I will definitely keep only do only do what only you can do yeah. Only do only do what only you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. so awesome. Uh, I would definitely <laughs> be carrying that with me. I wish I could remember who said it or where I even heard it. It was just a few days ago. Shelby said it. That's the way I'm going to yeah. write it down. That's the way I'm <laughs> yeah. going to pass it around. I heard from my friend Shelby that only you can only you you should only do what only you can do. That's what I'm going to exactly. tell everybody. Uh, see, I think I think every what what did I read recently? Was this Freddie? I don't know something about the cosmos. But so every human uh, is unique. We we are aware of this. But every human is also one of the of the billions, right? We're all kind of the same in that regard. Yeah. Uh, but so what we want to get out of our economy, what we what we want to make our economy the best and to make our society the best is to have every individual chasing those things that they absolutely want to do. Uh, it's yeah. actually a little, it's not really described often this way, but the fact that so many people in our culture are doing the things that they have to do to survive yeah. is actually mm-hmm. holding us back. And the more mm-hmm. we perpetuate that phenomenon, the slower we're gonna go as a culture. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. a culture that, that just encourages and helps people. Find the thing that you want to do. Find the thing that when you wake up, you go, oh, yeah, today's the day I'm going to do this. And you're excited about every day. Um, Yeah. And that's not an easy thing to find. Uh, You're actually Mm -hmm. quite fortunate if you find that at six years old and then you're able to pursue it for the rest of your life. That's the rare person. That's the extreme person. Uh, Most people that find it, find it, I think, in their late teens, uh, 20s, maybe even 30s, 40s in their adult life. Uh, But then... Most people, as far as I can tell, don't find it 
uh, as you said, a third of the of the people working right now, because they got a nice little pause, go, wait a minute, this isn't how I want to spend my life. All right. <laughs> I don't want to mm-hmm. sell myself to uh, to Netflix in order to eat. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of people that want to work in Netflix, but I'm sure there are plenty of people at Netflix that don't want to be there. They'd rather be somewhere else doing something else. Uh, and those people right. should be free to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because how much happier would the like general mood be everywhere you go if people were doing what they really loved? And I don't even think there. I think there's a lot of people out that that don't even realize that that's like a thing. Mm-hmm. You know that mm-hmm. like the concept of doing what you love is even available yes, to that's them. That's true. That's true. You know, it's really sad. It is such a sad statistic. Yeah, and you know, it comes. It's. It's not it's it's nobody's fault. Right. Uh, I think it's I think it comes from the way that our species has grown over the surface of this planet. So we began in a very small region and nature was absolutely our number one foe. Uh, Just about anything you came across outside of the walls of your tiny little city could kill you. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that was our state for a long, long time, Uh, even into even into agriculture that was still the state you still had the the wild so to speak of the oceans and you could go out onto the ocean or you could go out into the forest and just die and never be heard from again uh, even as recently as i think it was the 19th century i think it was even the early 20th century where they thought mm-hmm. that the fish in the ocean were absolutely un uh, extinguishable that we just couldn't do it that no matter how much far no matter how much whaling no matter how much fishing we did we could not affect the state of nature and that was less than 100 mm. years ago we're the mm. first generation to realize we can actually jack this thing up we, we, there's enough yeah. of us now we're consuming enough uh food we're we're covering enough land we're producing enough carbon we're producing enough carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide uh, we can jack this thing up and and not jack it up in that it's totally inhospitable for all species or that it just goes away, the earth will continue to be here, but we can jack up the environment that allows us to be here, right? We can jack it up for ourselves uh, right. such that we no longer exist. And I think we're the first generation to encounter this problem. Uh, and one solution yeah. that, I, that I, and this is the solution that I go for. The solution that I go for is look, it's an existential crisis that the human race get in front of climate change. It's an existential crisis that the human race become interplanetary. And so we need more people free to try to do that and then maybe try and fail. But we need more people trying. Who knows if some person who's currently selling themselves to Kentucky Fried Chicken could actually be the person that figures out the thing that Elon Musk needs to be figured out in order to get us interplanetary. Who knows? We don't know. But as long as that person (laughs) has to clock in every day and sell their soul in order to feed their kids, we're never going to know. Right. And so maybe um, UBI really does. uh, It really is at the root of all of your political beliefs because... (laughs) You can draw it back to um, climate change and mm-hmm. freeing those people up to start working on that instead, right? Well, it's it's not UBI, but it's it's a principle that's actually underneath UBI uh, that UBI uh-huh. would endeavor. It's attentional autonomy. Uh, that's okay. that's the real power kicker. So attentional autonomy is the privilege that wealthy children are born with. Paris Hilton, for instance, knew from the age of seven that she could try to bake cookies and fail. She could try to be an actress and fail. Not to say that she's a failed actress, Mm -hmm. just one list of things. She could try to be a model and fail. She could try to start a 
I don't know, a finance company and fail. She could try any number of things and fail. Mm. And she would always have a soft place to land and a chance to start again. That ability. Mm -hmm. And if she chose to just watch YouTube and eat cookies for the rest of her days and not write anything and not <laughs> read anything, she could do that too. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's attentional autonomy. And that privilege, we have a wealthy enough society where we can extend that privilege to everyone. There's no reason why it's not already there. Or There, there are several reasons, namely uh, human greed, which is, you know, a force to be reckoned with. That's the reason. Right. And, and it's natural. I'm not saying it's not mm -hmm. natural to be. Uh, let's say let's say selfish in the way of if and you got to be honest, if my cousin and some other kid of equal age are drowning in a pool next to each other. And I know I can only save one. I'm saving my cousin. That's just a fact of yeah. biology. Uh, no need to feel bad about it. That's just a fact. And so that principle in its benign form, this is the banality of evil, in its benign form transitions across, well, we need to do as a company to save a couple million here, so we're gonna do this. And then that decision causes someone to have a few less hours of work, which isn't a big deal, it's just a few hours. And then they're a little bit more stressed out, and then they're a little bit meaner to their brother, and then that's one straw that breaks that brother's back, and then that brother hits his wife, and then, you know, it's this cascade of these very mm -hmm. small sacrifices that mm -hmm. pile up on top of each other and create a society that's hard to hard to keep healthy. Um, and I think that that freeing people up to focus on their personal failings and not merely have to battle against society in order to eat and keep their lights on would move us mm -hmm. forward. I really do believe that. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. But why then, like in that example, why then would Paris Hilton also get the the like monthly stipend because because if you couldn't it just be like calculated based on how much money you already have or how much money you make it can't because for a couple of reasons one that number changes and so if paris hilton even though she's a multimillionaire today if her family said you're cut off well next year she's impoverished so then then we have to recalculate her wealth and what if we miss a year now that's a year she just doesn't get it and it's not fair. And so that's one, mm -hmm. one reason why using wealth or income is hard, because it's a lagging indicator uh, and we don't want to mm -hmm. leave people in the cold. Another reason is that if it if you do tailor it to only go to the to the poor or the or the least or the less fortunate, then it becomes then it, it's it's stigmatized. Then it's automatically got yeah. this stigma where, oh, it's only going to these people, only going to these people, because then it's not categorized as a return on the investments of your grandparents, mm -hmm. which is really the best way to categorize it. So the reason I think we should all get a check is because it was my great, 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 great grandmother that that put her blood and sweat into the plates so that the people who built the railroad company could eat. Right. It, it was mm -hmm. her that did that work. And I deserve And even though I'm not a part of the railroad company, I deserve a part of that benefit because I'm a member of this society. And so that's the principle that we use to give everybody yeah. the check is to say it was your ancestors that got us this wealth we have today and you deserve a piece. Yeah. Agreed. And the rich people otherwise would never go for it. So they would never vote voted in. They probably still won't. <laughs> they probably still won't because if you're a if you're a person they don't need it they, well and it'll cost them money because if, if your yeah. business spends 
let's say let's say your business has a monthly outflow of a million dollars, which is a moderate to large business, right? You spend twelve million. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of companies spend more than twelve million dollars a year in overhead. So if that's your ca- if that's your case, then you're also going to be dropping what one point two mil a year in an extra tax. You don't want to do that, right? No, who? Why would right. you want to do that? Uh, it, it, if mm-hmm. it and if it were just a raw tax that were going into the treasury's coffers, I would not support it. Uh, I would not support a bill that says we're going to institute this tax and then it's going to go into the coffer for some indiscriminate amount of time and then redistribute. No, 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 no. The tax goes directly back to the people, directly Mm -hmm. back to the people in the in the form of checks. And all you pay, all you take out of it is the minimum overhead you need to pay the people to cut the checks. That's it. It doesn't fund mm-hmm. any other programs. It doesn't sit in a coffer and earn interest or anything. It goes straight back to the people. And if the if the value of the tax changes a year, then the value of the checks change. But the value is always tied to the the taxes, and it goes straight to the people. Nothing in the middle. Uh, that's the principle. That's the program that I would support. Mm-hmm. Do you have other like people that you like? How do you find other people that you could talk to about UBI? Well, I was a a forum or something. Yeah, I was a volunteer with uh, Andrew Yang's campaign in 2020. And then I'm also a member of the Humanity Forward kind of online group. And so I've met people in the Humanity Forward online forums. Um, This guy named Bryce, actually, he was actually on the podcast. Uh, He was the guy that I met there. uh, And we're, you know, I'm not the only one that's super excited about basic income. So that's where I meet (laughs) other people uh, who are also excited about it. Yeah, I, I just yeah, exactly. I just see us as, you know, I really try to I try to, to ground my philosophy in thinking that's likely to in principles that are likely to not change and likely to be helpful to my grandkids and great grandkids. So I build from science. Uh, science has shown us that we have the four fundamental forces of physics. We have the periodic table and that human beings are a result of those forces and those elements. Uh, in the mm-hmm. in the macro scale, and that's where I start. And starting from there, I go, okay, well, how do we continue to survive? That seems to be a principle that we have uh, that we want to have more children. We want next generation to be more than us and interplanetary mm-hmm. and maybe multistellar and all these things. It seems like that's what we all want. And it seems to me the best way to get there is to free people up. Now, as an American, we love freedom, right? Right? Uh, we love freedom. We love the concept of it, but we have this paradigm that says. In order to eat, you have to sell yourself to somebody. <laughs> mm-hmm. How does that make sense? How is that American? I know. Sometimes it just feels too overwhelming, you know? That's why I think I grew up feeling like I don't really need to, I don't need to have a say. I don't really need to mm. take a stand mm. because it just seems like there's so many loopholes and. That's true. If you, if if um, we who's the person uh, you just said his name, um, who's the person that's working on getting, um, like uh, life on Mars, basically. Elon Musk. Oh, thank you. Yes. So mm-hmm. if he, if Musk said, "Okay, I did it. We can go live on Mars now," would you go? Would I go to Mars? Yeah. Would I go to Mars? Me, personally, Kari Filer? No, I wouldn't go to Mars. <laughs> I wouldn't go to Mars. Uh, what if your wife really wanted to? Would you go? If my wife really wanted to go to Mars? Yeah. 
if my wife really wanted, if she really wanted to go to Mars, we're, we're probably going to end up on Mars if she really wanted to go to Mars. But I would try <laughs> to talk her out of it. I yeah. would I would try to say, listen, uh, Mars is awesome. Our great grandkids for sure are going to be on Mars. But mm. something, something's going to go wrong on Mars. Right. So there's mm-hmm. going to be a, an, an economy, an environmental collapse. So there's there's going to the first ones to go are the people that have to be willing to work out those kinks. Right. Mm. So I'm, I tell you when I'm going to Mars, when there's a, a company that offers a cruise line back and forth to mm-hmm. Mars and they've done several hundred successful trips, then I'm going to Mars. Yeah. Yeah. Like for leisure. N- not before. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to Mars. I'm not part of the first pioneer wave. Uh, and in our generation, that will, that entire wave will be, you know, if, if for anyone while I'm alive, will be the first wave. So, yeah, they're going to have to, like you said, work out the kinks. Yeah, no, they got to be. Now, if somehow my computer skills, I'm a I'm a software developer. I guess we you know what we haven't we've been so long since we caught up. I got to tell you my trajectory. So uh, I think did you was was I from at UCLA last time we were hanging out? Yes. OK, I went to UCLA. Uh, I got that degree. I went into science. It didn't work out. Uh, and then I left science in 2017 and taught myself to code. And I just now am a full-time game developer. So that was a four-year journey going from not knowing any code to being a full-time game developer. Uh, but I just got here. That's amazing. And so if, if somehow my skills were up to writing code on Mars, I might mm-hmm. go to Mars. I, if I could be helpful yeah. that way. I think he's going to need you for sure. <laughs> No, he's not going to need me. People are so much better than me. (laughs) And so do you write codes for, you mentioned like um, having like a gaming company. Uh Do you write codes for like um, video games, like entertainment wise or websites like um, for other purposes? Uh, PC games, just fun games. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I love games the way that you love uh floral arrangement uh, so let me ask you that uh, i love it just because it's, it's an art form that i love to do but do you yeah. love the flowers or do you love the the wedding industry if if somebody told you okay you can either not you have to leave, either leave flowers or leave weddings but you can mm-hmm. keep the other one that is to say you can stay in weddings but not flowers or you can stay in flowers and oh, not weddings no. what direction mm-hmm. do you go in uh, yeah, I would stick with flowers. So okay. maybe like on a corporate level or like the people who, you know, when you walk into a hotel and mm-hmm. they have like a huge floor arrangement in the front lobby, okay. that that could be an industry. Or when you're walking through like a fancy mall and there's like these really pretty plant and flower like um, landscapes, that, that could be a part of the industry. So yeah, I would probably go in that direction. Um, then be a different type of um, vendor in the wedding industry. Because like I said, I I was doing coordination. I have done coordination for a lot of years, but that's just not really where my heart is Mm -hmm. anymore, you know? Um, Even though when you're a coordinator, you're like fully immersed in the bride's day. Um, You get to experience like all the emotions with them. You get a lot more praise from the guests as a coordinator because they see you the Mm -hmm. whole night you're out in front of, you're not in front of them, but they see you working behind the scenes. Um, So you don't get as much of that as a florist and I will miss some of it. Um, 
but it's really just the the art and the inspiration behind the flowers themselves that that I think will be what I hope to be uh, enough, you know, enjoyable enough. What's your and opinion of be. the what they do at the Rose Parade? Is that cool? Is that not cool? Um, I think it's really cool. Mm. I actually think it's very cool. I've never spent, I've never seen one in real life. I've never even gone to tour the exhibits. I really should. As far as I know, it's, it's a hundred percent real flowers besides the mechanics and stuff that go behind it. Um, but yeah, some of the things they can do, there's a similar exhibit at, um, Bellagio every, uh, so often they, they change it out, um, where an artist will come in and create like huge houses or, um, these like life-size butterflies that are all made of flowers, something like, um, it kind of reminds me of the Rose Parade. So that stuff is really neat. It's like, what can you do that has never been seen before with, just flowers you know and like, mm. like their natural state like we were talking about before so it's actually amazing what what can be done if you just you know turn them in a certain angle or use a certain kind of vessel you know so many different ways to manipulate it to have a completely different piece of of art have you drawn the metaphor from the flower to the human in any way um i mean you could say that flowers have a little bit of their own like personality or spirit. Um, and sometimes they just don't want to do what you want them to do. You know, if you want them to go a certain direction in an arrangement and they're just not doing it, there's some florists that say like, you just got to let them do their thing. And, um, so in that way they can kind of be like a human, you know, we're all, we're all individuals. Um, like you were saying, we're all, unique in our own way but at the same time we're all humans right yeah. so we're expected to have like shared characteristics and sometimes we don't want to do that or whatever it is so you might have a let's say there's a type of flower that lays down really flat and you can mm-hmm. use it to make these shapes and these images if you just press them against each other and kind of pin them to each other and then there's another flower same genus uh, very closely related species, but it's absolutely rigid and you can't do the same thing with it. So that would be an yeah. interesting discovery. <laughs> I would right. imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they're all, they are all flowers, but they are, there's a huge spectrum of what they actually mm-hmm. look and feel and act like. I got so into plants when I was learning, uh, a little, when I took my, my undergrad, I guess plant class, plant uh, genealogy class. And I just, I got really into trees. I didn't know. I I was surprised. I said, wow. So trees were this whole, I mean, they covered the the surface of the earth. They were the the thing that earth was. They were the earthlings, right? It was, it was tree. It was tree land. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, they, some of them had their flowers that flew on, I mean, not flower seeds that flew on the wind and they, they were competing with each other uh, mm-hmm. they so they had to outdo each other as species and it was just covered in these enormous trees and these really weird trees and all these different trees and that's all that was going mm-hmm. on while fish were swimming around uh, there were trees on the <laughs> surface uh, and then finally some fish popped up and said hey I can breathe up here and then the rest is history <laughs> so they're the ones that started clearing all the trees uh no i think we cleared the trees i don't i don't think anybody cleared them uh and so but but trees didn't have 
fruit, for instance, fruit wasn't a thing until animals got came up here. And so because trees don't eat fruit, they, they have no need for fruit. Uh, they didn't fruit until animals came up. And then one seed happened to have just accidentally happened to have a little bit more sugar in it than another, even though the sugar was only meant for the you know, only for the seed and an animal or a lizard or something came up and ate it and pooped it out. And then that one that had the gene for making the slightly more sugary seeds sprouted a tree that had even slightly more sugary seeds. And this is how the different fruits evolved uh, that we enjoy today. Um, oh my gosh. That's actually so fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. This planet we're on. Uh, it's a terrific thing, and I want to. I want to keep it going. <laughs> I wish. I wish we could take climate change a little bit more. Did you see the protest in Germany where these three people stood in a on a gallows? You know, a gallows where you're hanging from your neck. Yeah. And they had nooses around their necks, and they were three standing on blocks of ice that if the ice melted, <gasps> they would hang. Yeah, you you can Google a picture of it. It was just I think ten days ago or something. Um, and so what happened? No, it was just making a point. They didn't. They didn't let themselves get hung. But it was just a point that as oh. the ice melts, they die. Um, oh. And it, I, that really struck me. I said, "That's a good." I said, "I like that protest. I like that." Wow. Uh, that that strikes me. That makes the point. As the ice melts, we have to change. And and Andrew Yang was the only candidate I saw uh, in the twenty twenty election that said, "Look, the United States." produces 15% of the world's emissions. Even if we get our act together perfectly, the world still gets hotter. We can't stop it as a nation. We can't, it's not in our hands as a nation. Now we can lobby right. the UN, we can lobby China, we can lobby Poland, we can lobby India. We can say, hey, you guys, stop with the carbon as much. That's all we can do. We can't control mm -hmm. them. Uh, and they're the ones mainly doing it. Um, I actually saw a report last week, or maybe this was just three days ago, that said that five percent of the of the worst polluters are produ are producing seventy five percent of the emissions. So there is a list of these thirteen factories, literally thirteen factories, that are producing something like no, the list was like a hundred. It was a hundred long. So there are like a hundred factories that are producing seventy five percent of the emissions. And then the list that I saw was just the top ten of that hundred. Um, oh my gosh. And that's, you know, and none of them were in the United States. And so it's, it's it, we can't, as a nation, we can't stop climate change. All we can do is, right. scream, all we can do is scream about it. Um, but yeah, but that's what I think of when I think of the plants and then, and, but I'm also a human chauvinist. So my philosophy is if we knew how to get along as a species without any of the plants or the animals, I'm fine with that. But the point is, we don't know. We don't know uh -huh. how to get along without the plants or animals. So in that spirit, we better keep them all alive for as long as we don't aren't sure how much we're dependent on them. Right. Yeah. What does the word chauvinist mean? Chauvinist means favorite to to an ex exclusive degree. So if I'm a Los Angeles Lakers chauvinist, then it means that I will always be Los Angeles Lakers no matter what else is at stake. And so you could say, oh, this oh, building is going to burn down and we're going to lose some Laker memorabilia or the city or the city burns or something like that. I say, well, save the Laker memorabilia. <laughs> something like that, something ridiculous like that, where you just you, you put this thing above all else, even to an unreasonable degree. And okay. I think that's kind of a loose interpretation, but that's why I'm throwing it out there now. Uh, you, you might have heard it in the term male chauvinist, meaning people yeah. prefer males to all to females. Uh, that's okay. the way it's coming to our vernacular, I think. But I use it for humans. I'm a human chauvinist. If it's humans 
or everything else, I'm choosing humans every time. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's our species. Yeah. Like chauvinistic. That's how I've heard it before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm for our mm. species. Um, do you, what do you think of, of, of that? Do it, so let me ask you, if it were that the earth would continue without humans or humans could continue without the earth, but one has to go, which do you choose? Oh my God. I mean, humans. Nice. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a really hard question because the earth is like so special. It's awesome. But, um, but you you can't just kill all the people mm. in order to save the earth. <laughs> what are you saving it? What are you saving it for? Pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, I would say all the all the deer. Oh that's what we were saving God. it for. All the bears and the fish. Right. So it's oh, a bunch so of bears and fish yeah. and no humans. Nah, I'm not for right. that. Yeah. Well, and like you could argue that eventually we would evolve again right maybe maybe not yeah or in a different way maybe in a in a healthier way maybe you know some adaptation that was even better but even then it wouldn't be us it would be some other group that's similar to us but it wouldn't be us yeah it would be us i'm all for us what do you think of ai do you think we'll ever be able to upload people's brains into computers Mm. Um, yeah, probably Mm. because you know how even just like Echo and Alexa, they like learn our voices and they learn like, um, our like, um, what's the word? Like, um, habits Uh and routines. Like, I feel like they eventually could save all of that information and then put it into one computer that could decide Shelby would probably do this in this scenario, Mm. you know, um, or say this in this way, Mm -hmm. um, if presented with this situation, you know, so they could, it wouldn't have the exact like, um, opportunities that we do like in any given moment but i think they could do a pretty good job of replicating us yeah what do you think uh i i look forward to it i just don't think it's i just don't think it's close but i do look forward to it uh so i i believe that human beings are literally complex machines not figuratively literally complex machines uh, mm-hmm. And if we could figure out exactly how the machine works, we could store it in digital form. Uh, I think it's totally feasible. Not not now, probably not with not, probably not within a hundred years, to be absolutely honest. But you can imagine if we could chart the position uh, and composition of every single molecule, protein, synapse. Uh, and dendritic connection inside of a human brain at a given moment. Mm-hmm. As, and no, let's say this is more than a brain, the entire central nervous system. Let's say we could plot down to the protein every component of a human central nervous system and then store that information digitally and then recreate that nervous system protein for protein. You can recreate a person. Uh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that, yeah. 
You're totally right because, like, I feel like computers are really smart and they, I, like, we have advanced in, like, the computer world uh, by leaps and bounds. But understanding the human body, we really haven't, we have a lot more to do mm-hmm. uh, in that area. So you would have to be, we'd have to be a lot further along in, in that half of it in order to combine the two. Um, there's just, like, so much, like, I suffer with um migraines and there's like so oh, no. much that we don't understand about mm. headaches even mm. so like it just made me think of that when you're talking about like all the different components of a human brain and then what not even to mention like the whole body there's so much that we still don't even really understand mm. so yeah we'd probably have to be a lot further along before we actually create like have, have you found robot anything human. robust, any way robust way to fight the migraines that works? Um, meaning what by robust? I don't like in so general. I hear, what I hear about people who fight with migraines, I've only ever heard a series of failures in, in mitigating mm-hmm. them. I've never heard yeah. somebody says, I found this and it works for me. So I'm still looking for that. I'm still looking for someone who says, yeah, mm-hmm. I found this and it works for me. So medication works really well for me, actually. I'm very lucky because I would say on a pain scale of 1 to 10, my migraines are like maybe a 2 most of the time. They just last for days. If I didn't take medication, they would seriously last three to four days. Mm. And it's just like a very constant dull pain. Mm. Um, and sometimes if I don't take medication, they will get up to like a three or four. But I know that there are people that suffer from like nines and tens, you Jeez. know, many days throughout the month. So I'm lucky in that sense that medication does work. I just, I don't like relying on medication Mm -hmm. anymore Mm -hmm. you know it's like it feels really not good to me to have to be like dependent on a pill you know I think um like to always have to have them on me have them in my car like it just feels like um I don't like being reliant on them and also when I I do try to get pregnant like we want to do that soon and we, um, I can't just be taking all kinds of medication, mm-hmm. you know, I have to be, I have to like think about that too. So, um, I recently actually just two days ago got this device. I ordered this device and it came in the mail that my neurologist recommended and it, it, okay. it sits on my forehead. It's so, strange. so it's like an electronic device and it basically, um, sends like electrical pulses mm-hmm. to the, it's the trimignal nerve that runs through your brain that they can reach part of it through your forehead. And so it like pulsates on your forehead and it like desensitizes the nerve or something like that. So it's really, it looks like, um, my husband called me, um, Oh, I know you were talking about Marvel the other day. He called me Vision, who is one of the Marvel characters um, who has the um, 
the stone, infinity stone in his forehead. It looks like that because I am walking <laughs> around with this little device on my forehead hmm. um, or like a cyclops. Uh, so anyways, it's really silly and I've only had it for like two days. So I don't know yet if it works, but um, well, I'm just trying works. like, yeah. <laughs> It's so funny. My doctor was like, you just, he was trying to explain it to me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, just look it up because you have to see like the visual on the website. They have these people sitting there. They're like relaxing and they have this like funny little knob on their forehead. That's um, going to town on their nerve. But yeah. um, so I'm like really open. I just started to talk about it more. Again, like I posted about it on social media and trying to be like um, more verbal about my migraines because I know I'm not alone mm -hmm. and I'm trying to be open to other solutions. Um, and even though there's not much that people can do, it does feel good to just like get it out there and off my chest so I'm not like suffering in silence, you know? Well, it's, um, you know, your, your journey to fix your specific problems is actually beneficial for everyone uh, yeah i think it's true for for every person that uh, there's this old I, I, I don't know what you call it story saying i don't know what you call it but there's a puzzle and it's a globe and it's a, and all the little details of all the little roads of all the little civilizations and it's very hard to put this puzzle together you're trying to put it together it's mm -hmm. a thousand pieces you go jeez louise how's this ever going to work you flip it mm -hmm. over and there's an outline of a person and you put that together very easily. And you go, oh, yeah, I can put this. And then you flip mm, it back over and the world mm -hmm. is fixed. And so if you fix the person, you fix the world. Uh, I love that. So the saying, that, and that's how, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And so if each one of us were just going our own, digging deep to, to make ourselves our best selves, then we find that the troubles that seem deeply, uniquely specific are actually the most universal in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And I, once I posted it, just was like two weeks ago, mm. I was able to then, it like opened up a lot of conversations with other people who are messaging me saying like they've had migraines too for years. And so then I was even able to help them by telling them some of the things that I've tried that have worked for me. Um, so I can really like contribute in that way to other people who are also suffering and show them like it's okay to talk about it. And you're also so insightful and intelligent and articulate. So you're actually a wonderful champion uh, for people who are suffering from migraines everywhere, I'm certain. Thank you. I know it to I be did... Thank you. I have an app um, on my phone that helps me track them. And even on there, there's like a chat feature. And it's it's a really nice feeling just to know that there are so many people out there that not that I would wish it on anyone, but it's comforting to know that I'm not the only one. Hmm. You know. Yep. Yep. No, we. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of what are what are I mean, I guess the most most universal kind of hurdle uh, that I face that I could help people with is addiction. Uh, I mm -hmm. was addicted, one actually addicted to crack and speed. Uh, and, right. And I, don't, I don't know that I was addicted to weed. I smoked a bunch of weed. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know that I was addicted to that. I wasn't. Uh, maybe when I was younger, but towards the end, it was definitely cracking speed. And uh, I know what it is to have the monkey on your back. I know what it is to have 
99% of your body say, make the left, go home, make the left, go home, make the left, yeah. go home. And then when you get to the intersection, you make the right yeah. and you buy the dope and just <laughs> go, oh God, you know, I know, I know what that is. I know what that is. And so I'm, uh, I actually haven't been helping any younger people in recovery for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. I'm kind of in this zone. So I don't know if you've ever encountered this, uh, but people say, if you look at if you look at birthdays, you see a lot of single digits. You see a lot of two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then you don't yeah. see that many. But then you see 23, 24, <laughs> 25, yeah. 26. You go, well, where are the teenagers? Uh, and I think I'm in that phase where it's I'm not yeah. I'm not not part of. I'm just not in the rooms. And so, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be 10 years sober in September. Nice. Congrats. Congrats. Isn't that crazy? I can't, I can't even believe it's been that long. And Corey, you know what I was thinking about was that we actually met before I was even sober. Of course. No, I, you were my boss. <laughs> Isn't that so wild? Yeah, I, that's, I, that's I'm, terrific. I'm sure that we've talked about it before, but like you saw me at like my worst. Like I was totally at my bottom at that time. I wouldn't know. And, There's no way I could have known. No way I would have yeah, known. Yeah, that's. I, that's the thing is like, I'm sure at some point you did, but maybe you couldn't put your finger on it or no, something. No, because... I tell you the, the most one, there was a day, there was a day where I came in and you were back in your office and I, you were just lights out, shades on. And I go, oh, <laughs> she's hung over as hell. And that's, that would be the, the only day where that something like that ever crossed my mind. Right. And so maybe you just thought at that time, like I was a partier, or like a heavy not, drinker. Yeah, not even, no, no, not even a heavy drinker. Just you had drunk heavy the night before. That was the, right. that was the worst it got was it was one day. Yeah. One day you were back in your office, lights off, shades on. I go, oh, she is hung over. And that's it. That's <laughs> it. And it only occurred the once. It, because I was at that time, I was like 22, 23. So it would have been pretty normal. At that age, yeah. right? Yeah. To, yeah, totally. To have like a super hard night. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, bless your heart for not <laughs> trying to, um, you know, I don't know. I guess I just, I tried to keep it professional. You did. Um, you and succeeded. I certainly didn't know at the time that you were in recovery. So it's not like I would have opened up to you about like my struggles or anything like that it yeah, just no, that wouldn't have really crossed my uh, mind either. and i didn't and i didn't talk about it because you never know in a work setting uh i yeah. i still don't announce to so i mean if anybody from my current company happens to listen to this podcast there you go <laughs> they'll find that out but i still don't announce in work settings that i'm in recovery because you never know how a person is going to react you never know if they're going to go oh this person is a liability now or they're going to be neutral or maybe they'll think they're an asset and maybe they'll think I'm an asset. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. That, but I found that if you just don't even bring it up and just do the work, uh, then you can yeah. and show that you can do the work. Then if it comes up later, it's not a problem, because if you've been at the company performing, doing well for four years and then you go, oh, and by the way, I'm sober, then they go, oh, great. But if you're if it's week one. <laughs> <laughs> and you go, oh yeah, yeah. I'm sober. And they go, uh oh, How, is this guy gonna last? Yeah, 
it it would be almost impossible for anyone to have like to not have an attached idea mm-hmm. about what that must mean you know except i mean when i met my husband he had never met anyone who was sober really? or didn't really know one who struggled with alcoholism like hmm. he just had was never exposed to that in his life so i guess there are people that grow up um not having even any kind of a um a perception on that oh yeah but probably oh, very yeah. few <laughs> well I, I i think what i'm what i'm discovering as i age is the size of the cultural and experiential silos is absolutely enormous. I mean, mm-hmm. you can you can grow up in Southern California and meet somebody who grew up 30 miles from you and you two yeah. have zero in common other than geography, yeah. other than weather. That's it. They don't speak your language. They aren't part of your culture. You don't share common anything. <laughs> anything yeah. uh and that's what i'm discovering so i'm not i'm not surprised when somebody says nope haven't heard of it i go okay that's fine i'll, t- I'll try to explain yeah. it and i'll try to keep in mind that i'm a representative for for you now and so i've experienced that a lot with blackness uh, to be absolutely honest and so mm-hmm. a lot of times i'll be uh, here recently not so much recently more so i'd say about 10 15 years ago uh, I was the only black guy a lot of people met. I was I was the entire representative for all of black America mm. to these people. Uh, and I knew mm. that I was. And I knew that I was. And I personally saw it as an opportunity to put a good foot forward. Uh, but it's not it's not fair and it's unreasonable if those people then took me as a representative for black culture. Even though I yeah. had that in my mind. If they themselves go, oh, most black people are like this guy or the minimum or the minority of black, then that's your fault. You can't, you shouldn't, there, there are 38 million people uh, that are all very, very different. It's not a monolith. And so you shouldn't draw, we shouldn't draw those conclusions about any group. If you meet someone in recovery, they don't represent all of recovery. If you meet someone right. from from uh, the rural south or from the city or from anywhere from New York, they don't represent all of the people there. Yeah. Same with Republicans. Right. Same with Republicans, right? If you meet if you meet one Republican, uh, they don't represent all Republicans. Now, representatives are different. <laughs> They're supposed to yeah. represent, uh, <laughs> you know, and it actually hurts my heart that Mitch McConnell can stand up on his stage and in, in his acceptance speech say, I'm uh, I'm the only one in congressional leadership that's not from California or New York. And then people applaud. That hurts my feelings uh, mm-hmm. simply because. What? So you guys think we're terrible just because we live on the coast? Uh, that mm. is, does that does that make us terrible? Because we because I was born here. I mean, that, that, yeah. that hurts my feelings to be to be deemed as a as an unworthy person simply by luck of birth. Oh yeah. I mean, not only that, but I just feel so aligned with everything that California has chosen to do hmm. in the last year. I'm hmm. just like I've never been more proud to be. California, especially the more I learn about what other states are doing. Mm. My God. Yep. Different states but, are doing it differently. That's for oh, sure. Oh, so different. So how do you think that you understood at that time you mentioned like 10 or 15 years ago, yeah. like acknowledging the fact that you might be the only black person in the room or yeah. that's all ever meet. Do you think you understood like the weight of that at that time? Because that's a pretty like heavy thing to wrap your head around uh-huh no full weight yeah and so you knew 
like you how did that feel at that time like uh, do you were you even aware of how it felt yes yes uh it's, it's a deep there can is the, can there be an honor deeper than that i don't know mm. uh it felt exactly like being from krypton and i'm on earth mm. that's the mm -hmm. way it felt and i said i'm gonna be superman then if i'm gonna represent mm. that's what i'm gonna represent yeah, I could see that. Yep. Well, then you took it like with pride. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. yeah, that's neat. I mean, when it comes to, you know, back to recovery, like if I know that I'm in a situation where someone might need like another person in recovery to lean on, like let's say I'm in like a family setting with mm -hmm. my husband's family or something and there's someone who might need to talk to me one day, I actually feel a lot of pride too. Like I am honored to be the one person in the room that is sober. Yes, if they ever needed that, you know, if they ever needed a buddy in that way, um, I could totally be that for someone else. So that's kind of a cool feeling yeah, in the same great. way. It's great for, uh, you know, I think, cause if you, if you think about it, I, I, I do think about it from reverse. So let's say I'm the person in a room I'm struggling with addiction and when I when and then my uncle says to me you need to leave that stuff alone I hear what he's saying but it doesn't mm -hmm. but I don't feel his empathy I, I hear what he's saying but what I feel is a lack of empathy and a lack of I feel the opposite of empathy I right. feel him saying you need to leave it alone and then I think well he doesn't know how broken I am because I can't just leave it alone. if I could just leave it alone I would you think I don't want to just leave it alone right uh, but, right. It, but I can't say all that right and so it's it would be an, a beacon of hope to have someone else in the room and say, I know what you're talking, I know what you're talking about having the monkey mm. on your back. I know exactly where you are. Uh, I know how, how impossible it seems. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I knew, I know what it is to think about something until you have it. And then once you don't have it, think about it and then get it again. And then realize six months have passed and you haven't thought about anything else. I know mm -hmm. that. I experienced that. It was actually more like a year. <laughs> more like a year at a time where that would happen. Yeah. Uh, and then to have so much time go by where you we never even thought about it anymore. You know, that's, that's really right. cool too, to be able to think, oh my God, I used to think about that every single day. And now I don't even have to think about it once in a month. I found myself less relatable in the high single digit sobrieties. Uh, when I was mm -hmm. eight, nine and 10, I found that I mm -hmm. couldn't talk to, I just, I found myself not being able to engage with new people. Um, because it's so different now because it's so, like so far removed. Yeah. And I, even though, even though I'm telling them the words of identifying with them, it mm -hmm. wasn't the mm -hmm. same resonance as when I was mm -hmm. one, two and three, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when I was, when I was three and I was talking to a new guy, I felt it. Right. I felt yeah. that him going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now and maybe maybe some of us from their side, too. Right. Maybe when you're when you're 90 days and you're talking to somebody who's 11, you're going, ah, you know, ah, you're you don't know. You're you no, totally. You don't know, right. Yeah, totally. Because and I think you'll remember that if you I do remember of thinking like, well, that's just crazy that that person has 10 years. That's just I'll never get there. But if you had one year at the time, like that was something I could taste that, you know, like that actually seemed attainable. So you I remember latching on more to the people that had less time at mm -hmm. that 
when I was new because otherwise it just seemed anything past probably like five, eight years seemed crazy talk. What I identified was that people who were 9, 10, 11, they didn't ever talk about getting loaded. (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. that's what would stick out to me because I go, I go, dude. All you talk about is sports and your house. And (laughs) (laughs) what are you, what are you talking? You know, you never talk about getting loaded. And that's all I think about. And you never talk about it. And now on the other side, I see why, because the world is enormous. The world is freaking enormous. I saw a saying, this was just this morning. I haven't even told anybody, but it was a saying that said, addiction is giving up everything for one thing. And recovery Mm -hmm. is giving up one thing for everything. Mm, I love that. Yeah, so cool. Because the world, the yeah. world's huge, right? There's so much in the world. Right. Uh, there's so much to be interested in and and try to engage in. And one of my favorite thinkers, a guy named Jordan Peterson. Uh, have you ever heard of Jordan Peterson? No. Different people have different feelings. Sometimes he sometimes he strikes a chord. <laughs> Sorry, I threw that out there like that. <laughs> okay. uh, he's, I, wouldn't, I don't think he's controversial. Some people think he's controversial. I don't think he's controversial. I think he's a, a great and wise thinker. And one of the things he says is we don't know how strong a person can be. We don't, we've never seen it. We've only seen it in mythos. We've only seen it in Jesus and Gandhi and our imaginations, our imaginations about Dr. King. Even though we know he was a human, we make him, we make him larger than life posthumously. Yeah. Uh, for good reason, but we do. Uh, in in all of our in great myths, we and so you don't know how strong you can be, and you as an and what he says to everybody who reads him, uh, you as an individual can be so strong, but you have to get stronger. You have to start now, right? And you mm-hmm. and if you if you wait a day, that's one less day stronger you are when you get to the end. If you wait a week, it's the same story, right? So every time you skip out on getting a little bit stronger, that's a little bit less strong you can be at the end of your mm. at the end of your trajectory. Um, mm-hmm. And I carry that around. I carry that around. Yeah. Mm, I like that. Yeah, JP is great. I had a long, uh, what do you call it? Not not argument, but so there was a guy I met. JP is one of my favorite thinkers and probably my second favorite thinker of all time. Um, and But he gets accused of being, what is it? He's accused of being insensitive to the aims of the, insensitive to collective aims, uh, which I mm-hmm. think is a fair critique because his, his philosophy is focused on the individual. And what I said was uh, to the guy who says, look, Jordan Peterson doesn't talk about how to heal society right how to how society can right society's wrongs and I, and he's right he was right jordan peterson doesn't talk about that but i said you wouldn't fault kobe bryant for not making you an excellent piece of sushi right he's not a sushi chef he's kobe bryant right uh, right so it's the same with jp jp is not a collective philosopher that's not what he does his he's a yeah. clinical psychologist and his effort is his focus has been on how an individual person can be their best uh and that's his work as they got to judge them mm. by his work, I think. Right. He's got yeah, some awesome books. They're me. called 12 Rules for Life and 12 More Rules for Life. Uh, <laughs> I really recommend them. Did you read both? I've read both, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I've read his larger, he's got a larger kind of more academic, more textual, more academic work uh, called Maps of Meaning. 
that's a larger work. And I've, I've read, so what I've done with that is there's an abridged version of the book inside of the book itself, uh, okay. which is a summary. And he provides that. He says, this is a summary. Uh, the summary itself is the size of a small book. And I read that. But then he says, in between are the extended details about how every example is used and brought forth. It's probably... I don't know, wow. 600 pages or something. So I, I didn't read it word for word, the entire thing, but I did read the abridged version. Uh, and I've heard several, probably about 100 hours of lecture online. Wow. Did you ever think about going to school for philosophy or psychology instead of computers? I didn't go for computers. I went for neuroscience. I switched to computers after. Wow. Uh, I, wow. I did think about going for philosophy, but I heard... I heard this joke. It is so one of these is different. A PhD in mathematics, a PhD in science, a PhD uh, in philosophy and a large pizza. Which one of those is different? <laughs> um the pizza. Wrong. It's the philosophy degree cuz it can't feed a family of 4. Oh shoot. <laughs> So oh, that that man. kept me out of philosophy, even though I was a philosophy. I was an I was an unofficial philosophy minor. Um, okay. I was just a member of the philosophy groups and I talked to a lot of philosophers and I've read philosophy books. Uh, my favorite thinker in that arena is probably Sam Harris, uh, followed by Frederick Nietzsche. Um, so I do I do a lot of work there. I do my own. I do my own philosophy. Yeah, I think my, my, the focus of my philosophy is the phenomenon of human choice. And what I think people should reckon with is the fact that every single day you're making thousands of choices. Now, that's a heavy fact. <laughs> that's a very heavy mm -hmm. fact. Uh, and it's not easy. And, and no one should carry it around. It's a heavy fact, but you shouldn't carry it around heavily. I don't know how, how to say that. That doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> it, but, it, but it's true, right? Whether you use your left hand or your right to pick up your mug of water is a choice that you have to take yeah. responsibility for. Whether you step out the door with your left foot first or your right foot first is a choice that you have to take responsibility for. Um, yeah. And that's the center of my philosophy. Uh, and it helps me boil down a lot of political problems and thinking about society, thinking about race and class and culture and climate change and all sorts of things, even even politics, right? Basic income, all that, because what I want to do is I want to give people the freedom to focus on their own choices, because I think that's what makes us better. Yeah. And hold people accountable that's for right. the choices that they make. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of um, talk out there about doing... Not doing what you really love as like your main job. So maybe philosophy could be more like, for lack of a better word, like a hobby for you. It's just an interest. It doesn't have to be your money maker. Yeah, no, you know, it, it doesn't then, make money. But I, what I like to say is, I'm a philosopher at heart, and I have a philosopher's disposition. Uh, and I write, mm -hmm. I write to my for my own edification, um, in order to to kind of make my arguments coherent, my thoughts coherent on it. Mm -hmm. Very cool. It keeps me. It keeps me in in touch with the beautiful. I feel because there's so much beauty in the moment, and it's this moment, mm -hmm. uh, this moment that we live perpetually. Uh, that's mm -hmm. where I find beauty. It seems like that's where you find beauty too. I would imagine because you're you're in love with the way that flowers present. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely helps keep me grounded. Mm-hmm. I feel like I do a good job of living in the day as much as possible. Maybe not in the moment, but in the day. Sometimes I live in the week, but I try not to think too far past that, at least. Come to the <laughs> it moment. It used to be a lot worse. <laughs> come, to the, come to the moment. I would, I would implore you. Yes. Spend spend all of your time. Spend. I mean, it, yeah. Spend all of your time in the moment. Literally, the better you do that, the better you'll feel. Um, yeah, I agree. You're so right. So, what would you say, Shelby, to the young woman, young man out there trying to make heads or tails of the world? What would you What would you want to leave them with to to help them make heads or tails? Mm. so much pressure right if i only had one one chance to give them a message yeah um i would try to sum it up with something like just do what makes you happy do whatever you can to be happy and um forget about all the rest forget about what that should look like and just just try your best to be happy with what you've been given. Are you saying that gratitude is a tremendous attitude? I think I'm saying, yeah, and if, yes, gratitude's important, but if you're not happy with the current circumstances, you know, do what you need to do to, to get to a place where you are happy. Mm. Maybe more like happiness is the most important thing. <laughs> mm. Mm. So do whatever you need to do to, to find happiness. I like that better. Well, I appreciate it. I think it's a wise uh, and direct sentiment. Uh, if you pursue your own individual happiness uh, and mm-hmm. then if you're feeling a bit unhappy, maybe look inward and see if there's something else you can do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. Well, I'll let you go. I know you've got a hard cutoff in about eight minutes. Yeah, I have a big work week this weekend. So thank you so much, Kari. I really appreciate you bringing me on. And this has been really enjoyable. It's been great catching up with you, too. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Uh, The door is open. Okay. thanks. Have Have a good good weekend. Okay. bye. Bye.